Okay, everybody, welcome. Welcome. It's wonderful to have you all here. Uh, it's great to see a bunch of um, unfamiliar faces. I know there's a whole fo- uh, crowd of folks at home. Uh, I, I saw some lightning earlier and heard some thunder. Was, is there a storm out there? Oh, well, well done for fighting through it, and I hope we managed to avoid the hail. Lord have mercy. Um, before we begin, just one quick um, notice. Pastor Shaw uh, mentioned to me that he and a bunch of men are getting together on Saturday morning at 8.30 a.m. to hammer fence posts into the ground around the trees uh, on the grass outside the front of our church. Yes, that's right. Before we can renovate our parking lot, we need to build fences to protect those trees. Uh, apparently, that's the regulations. You could drive a truck into one of those trees and it's not moving, but still we need to protect the trees. So anyway, Pastor Shaw is going to be doing that. If you're able to help and would like to do so, um, well, heck, we're going to be talking about a vision for deacons. <laughs> so there's no blackmail involved there, okay? It's just, um, all right, so yeah, just uh, see Pastor Shaw about that. All right, well, welcome. Those of you who are uh, less frequently here than others um, may need a reminder, um, I'm going to talk a fair bit tonight, but my aim is to leave a fair amount of time open for discussion and interaction. I hope not to talk for the whole time. Uh, I may stop periodically during what I say, uh, just to see if you want to talk about particular things. You should all have one of these handouts, which has a vision for deacons. And the questions on the back, sorry, the, yeah, the questions on the back are really for you to go away and think about. Uh, for those of you who are married... Uh, to think about with your spouses, and I hope that the conversations that we begin today and continue in the next two weeks, Lord willing, will um, uh, stimulate some uh, sort of thoughts there, and maybe in one or two cases, it may even be possible for one of uh, us as your pastors to get in touch with you and chat with you about your thoughts about them. We're going to be going through uh, the material on the front uh, of this uh, handout, if you're at home. You should have one in your inbox. I sent it around about five o'clock this evening. So uh, if you can't find that, please have a quick look for it. But it should be there. Uh, I did send it this week, I think. So uh, let me begin with prayer, and then we will get started. Let's pray together. Merciful and gracious God, we are thankful to you for one another. Thank you for your word, the Bible, which is the all-sufficient and spirit-inspired guide to everything that matters. And we're grateful to you for it, particularly this evening as we come to this issue of uh, a vision for deacons and diaconal service. We know that this matters. And so we approach your word with confidence that we will find here what we need so that we can approach the task of seeking to serve Christ faithfully as his disciples, for the sake of the body of Christ, the church of which we're privileged to be members, both now and in the future. And we ask that out of this will come a greater sense of clarity in all of us about what diaconal ministry involves, a great sense of gratitude for those men who already undertake it, and we dare to pray increased Christian maturity for all of us and some great candidates for diaconal ministry in the future. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, by way of introduction, let me begin with some of the thoughts that are at the top of this uh, handout. I want to speak first about the context uh, into which this discussion uh, lands, 
the context of our growth at All Saints, it won't have escaped your notice that we are growing really quite rapidly at All Saints. Just to remind you, we've been growing for over 10% a year numerically since our founding until about two years ago when uh, fairly abruptly the, relate, the rate of growth changed upwards, upwards of 20% a year. We're growing wonderfully rapidly. We've got sometimes 100 and something people down here in what we should start calling the sanctuary extension rather than the fellowship hall, um, which is just a wonderful blessing. And this growth is uh, producing all kinds of opportunities, both now, uh, we're exploring church planting in Granbury. We talked about this in a recent meeting here. Uh, Pastor Neil is uh, leading the way with some uh, 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 exploratory meetings um, in Granbury, but also here at All Saints, and who knows, perhaps into the future. Uh, Anybody know how many deacons we have now in the church at All Saints? You may answer. Not enough enough is the correct answer. Thank you. We have four, which when I tell my friends in the series, it's like, how big is the congregation you're a pastor of? Oh, it's like 300 and something. I can't keep up. How many deacons you got? And they're expecting like 10 or 12. I say, yeah, we've got four. They look at me like, how how do they do it? Um, I don't know how they do it. Um, uh, We, I don't want to say we're behind the curve, but the growth that we're experiencing is producing both great opportunities now and in the future, to reach out to new people. We have, we have new families arriving literally every week, literally every week. Last week, I had three membership interviews in two days. This week, I've had one already. Uh, Pastor Neil, Pastor Shaw are doing similar things. It just isn't stopping. And we have a city that we're a part of that has tremendous needs, and who knows where the Lord might lead us. I, um, on my optimistic days, and most of my days are optimistic days, I think, wouldn't it be great, five or six church plants in 10 or 12 years? Nicole reckons that's not enough. She's like, I'm praying for 10 church plants in 20 years, wasn't it you said? 10 in 10 years. <laughs> there we are, thanks, babe. Um, for which we will need an army of deacons. From somewhere. And it's one of those things, isn't it, where it's like, you're Deacons sort of magically appear out of this mysterious system of eldership that exists in an ivory tower fifth floor that's invisible to everybody else at all sense. That's not what happens. Uh, Deacons are appointed uh, from the men among the congregation. And so the aim of this is, well, there are three uh, aims uh, for this and the next two Bible Bible studies in this series uh, under the heading of rationale. First, quite simply... I want to set before all of us a vision that may help as part of the training for future deacons. That's one of the most important rationales. Uh, We want to specify and explore in a little bit of detail what it takes to be a great deacon. We are blessed with four tremendous deacons. I'm not just buttering them up because they're here or because they're watching. Uh, If you knew how much these men served and their wives support them in their service, well, you wouldn't be surprised because you know them personally. My fear, in, in my gloomier moments, my fear is that laying out the, the, the qualifications for diaconal ministry may cause half of them to resign and nobody else to ever want to stand. Um, uh, that's not the intended outcome. Uh, but uh, it does seem to me unreasonable to expect men to aspire to an office whose qualifications have not been specified in some detail. We want to give you a target to aim for. It's important because there are lots of things that are obvious about 
the qualifications for diaconal ministry, but there are some things which are less obvious. Um, has it occurred to you, for example, that there are very significant qualifications for the wife of a deacon? Scripture speaks very plainly in those terms, and either next week or the week afterwards, I want to explore that, along with a bunch of other aspects of what, we're, what Scripture requires us as a church to look for in those men who uh, undertake this office. It's also important, frankly, because there are downside risks. But if, if we got this wrong and appointed a man who's not equipped for it or too immature for it or in other, some other way not cut out for the task, that has potentially quite serious implications because deacons carry a fairly weighty burden of responsibility. I have actually approached a few men uh, directly already, and I will be approaching a few more in the months and years ahead just to sort of tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, listen, uh, we've talked about this diaconal service thing. Um, you know, no pressure, but... <laughs> and. Um, I, I want to be realistic with you about this. Of course, we don't actually have a formal deacon training program. Some churches do. We haven't initiated that. But for reasons that will be obvious now, but may become more obvious in um, uh, next week and the week after, where we start thinking about what First Timothy 3 says about diaconal ministry, let them be tested first. It is helpful to give potential deacon candidates opportunities to serve and just see whether it's something that they feel called and equipped to do and are able to do. And if I can be quite candid, my goal, what I'm praying for, among other things, as the outcome from this, that is that there will, at the next time that we open the nominations for deacons, be four, five, six outstanding candidates who have had a clear vision of what the ministry involves set before them and in whom all the rest of us can clearly see what we have been looking at, hopefully, I pray, with greater clarity. Wouldn't that be wonderful if in six, eight, 12 months we have another deacon nominations thing and it's like we've got four or five guys and it's like, yeah, yeah, they, obviously. This is, yeah, we'll vote, but it's like, <laughs> because we've got a clear vision of what it is we're looking for. And alongside that, we've got 10, 12, 15, 20 other men who uh, have been given this vision with sufficient clarity that it's now clear where they need to work and grow and mature so that they can serve in this way in the future. That is my first aspect of the rationale. Second, uh, it doesn't seem to me reasonable to expect people to vote intelligently unless they know what they should be voting for. We do want to involve, and we constitutionally do involve, the whole congregation in nominating and voting for approved deacon candidates. Well, how are you supposed to know how to cast your vote? It sort of presupposes that you have some criteria that you could apply. And it's not good enough, as we might say back in England, you know, he's a good chap. Um, Or more commonly, actually, diaconal ministry is sometimes viewed wrongly as a kind of badge in recognition of long service. You know, he's been around forever, this chap, and yeah, well, you know, we should probably, probably make him a deacon, you know. <laughs> Bump the numbers up, make the website look good. That's not an appropriate way. This is a very important ministry with some very significant responsibilities. We're not playing games. Uh, we want to make sure that we get absolutely the best candidates for this calling and that they know exactly what they're getting into and that they are well-equipped for it. And that way, as we'll see tonight, the church can flourish and grow. That's the second reason. Third reason, um, there are some people here, like this young lady, for example, 
He's never going to be a deacon. He may be a deacon's wife one day. There are some young men around here, round and about, who, if you're going to be a deacon, you're not going to be a deacon yet. Um, why would you be interested? You're not even voting. I mean, your dad votes on your behalf. Why would you be interested in coming to a bunch of Bible studies about diaconal qualifications? The answer is, I hope, among other things, that you'll discover that the, the qualities that make a great deacon make a great faithful follower of Jesus. To a large extent, the scriptural qualifications for diaconal ministry are highly specified versions of just Christian maturity. And I hope that this will just be a bunch of Bible studies about Christian maturity for you. Um, Looking at godly character traits afresh again, and that will do us all a bunch of good, I hope. Um, I want to say again, quite plainly, I think it will be a good thing for all men, all men to aspire to the character and godliness and wisdom and maturity that would make them eligible candidates for diaconal ministry. It doesn't mean that everybody will eventually serve in that capacity, but it will be really nice to be spoiled for choice. I have to say, in the time that my wife and my family and I have been here and getting to know many of you guys really quite well, well, I'll be honest, one of the things that really attracted me initially to consider this call was the people in the congregation. I, in the short time that I got to know some of the perhaps more long-standing members of the congregation, I admired them. And I thought, if I, wouldn't it be an honour to spend time around those men? And as more people have joined the congregation, I've thought the same thing again and again in different ways. And I pray for you guys. And I thank God for you that we're not pastoring a congregation where we're you know, picking up thousands of broken pieces all the time. Of course, there are times when there are the, there's the odd crisis and needs a bit of help with, but we're pastoring men and women who are zealous for the Lord. I think many, many men who I know in this congregation could, by God's grace, make wonderful servants of the church as deacons in years ahead. So, just before we jump into this first text I want want to look at, I want to explain just very briefly what I'm not going to be doing. There is a huge literature out there on structures of church government, elders and deacons and ministers and pastors and evangelists and is it pastors or pastor teachers or is it pastors and teachers and um, doctors of the church and how many offices are there? Are there two or (laughs) two and a half or seriously, that's one of the options, three or four. I found one article that said there's one office in the church and another article that said there's seven offices in the church. Uh, the, the literature is quite confused. Um, I'm not going to try and delve into that. I think I could justify quite well, biblically, the, the structure that we have at the Door Saints or something like it where we have a, an office of deacon, we have elders, and we have Uh, pastors who are ministers of word and sacrament who are also elders but are sort of different in some ways as well as being similar in some ways. I think that's biblically uh, warranted but it's not really my concern to delve into those um, uh, uh, details. And one reason is simply our constitution tells us what to do. We we have as part of our church constitution the the CREC constitution which says article 2 section D each congregation will be served as possible by a plurality of deacons. Well, there we are. So we'd better find ourselves a plurality of deacons then, haven't we? Otherwise, we're not in keeping with our own constitution. Right. So to that end, what I want to do is to spend most of tonight reflecting on 
the, the meaning and implications of Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. I'm going to read this to you, then talk a bit about the background. Actually, I'll talk about the background first, just to, just to remind you. Um, you know uh, the book of Acts. Um, it's one of my favourite New Testament books. Uh, is nicely summarised by what Luke, who wrote it, um, uh, records our Lord Jesus saying in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So then, the book of Acts tells the history of the Spirit's work or perhaps it's Jesus' continuing work through his spirit, whom he gave to his church, as they spread the gospel through the preaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel, um, in these kind of concentric circles, Jerusalem, Judea, which is the region around Jerusalem, Samaria, which is a bit further afield, and then the ends of the earth. So it is a story of the spread of the gospel and the growth of the word. And Acts is punctuated by a series of little summaries which explain or state how the word continued to grow. Let me just um, point you to a few of them. We've got Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Second half of that. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Then you've got something again in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, which is in the text we'll look at in a second. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. You've got it again. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Um, There are six major statements of this kind and a number of smaller ones. And it's really, really fascinating. When you look in detail, what happens is you get this repeated cycle, which goes like this. Crisis, resolution, expansion. Again and again, you have some kind of crisis or problem that needs to be overcome. The problem is then dealt with. And after it's been dealt with, the church expands. So a few examples. Um, In Acts chapter 5, you have the crisis of Ananias and Sapphira's dishonesty in concealing from the Holy Spirit the full proceeds of the land that had been theirs that had been sold. That's resolved by the Lord judging them both, and they're both put to death. And then you've got Acts chapter 5, verse 14, the church expands. In chapter um, uh, 7 through 9, you've got the martyrdom of Stephen and the opposition of Saul to the gospel. And the the church is scattered. But that problem turns out to be the resolution of the problem, as when the church is scattered, they're preaching the gospel everywhere, and you get the statements in chapter 9, verse 31, and then Saul is converted. Uh, And that's quite a nice fix for the problem of Saul being a persecutor. And so you've got this repeated cycle, crisis, resolution to the crisis, expansion. Now that's what's happening in chapter uh, 6 verses 1 to 7. Actually, it indicates an important um, underlying theme, not just in the book of Acts, but which we should expect to find in church life generally. We should expect crises. We should expect problems, and we should expect, by God's grace, to overcome them, 
And as we overcome them by God's grace, we should expect him to bless the church with continued growth in size and in maturity. When a crisis happens, that's not the end of the road. Sometimes people think, oh my goodness, it's a disaster, it's a crisis. It's, that's not, it, it's a problem. But it's not the end of the road. The pattern for church life that the book of Acts seems to suggest is kind of normative is that the, um, the problem gets resolved by the grace of God. You find a way of fixing it, and the church then continues to grow. And the example that we've got in Acts chapter 6 is exactly like that. Basically, what we've got, I'll read it to you. Um, I've put um, uh, the text on the handout in front of you because there's a couple of words I want to highlight for you. Um, there's a crisis. The crisis is occasioned by a famine, which causes a, a shortage of food. There's some criticism about how the food is being distributed, which feeds off cultural and uh, linguistic differences, which threatens to divide the church. And the, the problem gets solved with the appointment of these seven men. And after the problem gets solved, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied and so on. So let me read it. And then as we uh, look at it, I'm going to highlight a few uh, salient points and then we'll draw some implications and that should give us plenty of time for questions. You with me? So jump straight in. Verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily service. Your translation will have distribution of food or something like that. Come back to that in a second. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Can you see how it works? Crisis? Stuff in verse 1. Okay, let's fix this. Let's try and deal with this. What's the wisest way to deal with this? So they deal with the problem. Verse 7, the church continues to grow. Expect problems. Expect problems and expect by God's grace to overcome them. And one of the kinds of problems we might expect to get is the problems that arise from too few people to handle critically important practical matters of church life like this. Let's just look in more detail at what happens here. In the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily service or distribution of food. Background here is there was a series of famines in first century Jerusalem. Uh, we know this partly from history books, partly from the Bible, another history book, because Paul's collection for the saints in Jerusalem later during his missionary journeys was designed to alleviate the food shortage for the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, and what happens here is you've got two groups of widows uh, from really come from two distinct groups within the Jewish Christian community. The so-called Hellenists, who were probably Jews who were either from the diaspora, from the, the community of the Jewish people spread around Jerusalem, who'd come into Jerusalem for Pentecost or, or, and had stayed, uh, 
or they're just Greek-speaking Jews who were in a Greek-speaking synagogue, the Hellenists, and the Hebrews, and who would have been Hebrew-speaking Jews in Hebrew-speaking synagogues. And they're Christians from both camps. And it's not just that the widows are arguing with each other. Notice, look carefully. You actually have a very serious division within the Christian community as a whole. The Hellenists, the Greek-speaking uh, Christian Jews, were getting stroppy with the Hebrew-speaking Christian Jews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there's a food shortage. The church had rightly taken upon itself the responsibility of provision for the poor, which, as we'll see in a few minutes, is one of the things which it draws from its Old Testament background and from the ministry of Levites. But there's some sense in which this, this food isn't being distributed equitably. And the reason is not because it seems anyone's being really ungodly, because the solution is not to rebuke ungodly lack of fairness. It just seems like it was disorganized. This church is growing really rapidly. We've probably got thousands of, we know we've got thousands of Christians within weeks, if not months, of of, uh, Pentecost. We've got thousands on the day of Pentecost. We could have tens of thousands of Christians. And in a context where widowhood was more common because men did more hazardous daily tasks and disease and injury and so death were more common, you could have... 1 or 2%, 3 percent, 4%, 5 or 10% of the female population being widowed and thus depending for food on, among other things, the charitable resources of the church. And this is a serious issue then because it, it's a practical issue. I mean, people are going to die of starvation unless we get this right. It's also one of some pastoral sensitivity because you know, the not being... Uh, too crude about it, but um, conflicts between people who have a different language and cultural background can very quickly get inflamed, correct? So this needs to be handled swiftly and needs to be handled well. Verse 2. And the 12 summoned, the 12 is probably the uh, 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and they, they said, well look, <coughs> we, could, we could do this. I mean, there's 12 of us. We could kind of organize something here, but it would be a mistake for us to do this. It would be a mistake for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. You notice what they're, they're doing. They're drawing a distinction between two different types of work. The work that they, the apostles, have been given to do, which here, preaching the word of God, um, in verse 4, they describe it as prayer and the service of the word. There's There's that ministry, and there is the practical service of serving tables, making sure everybody's got enough food. Now, it's from this distinction between prayer ministry of the word and practical service that some people draw the conclusion that what you've got here is the formal initiation of the Christian diaconate. This is when the deacons emerge. The office of deacon is kind of invented in Acts chapter 6. If you look closely, that's actually not what it says. Uh, The word deacon, diakonos, doesn't appear here. Just look closely. You do have a distinction, but it's not really a distinction between offices. In verse 1, the daily diaconia, 
the daily service just means like the daily practical food handouts to keep the widows alive. In verse 2, the cognate verb, diakonain, to serve, is used in a similar way. And in verse 4, service, diakonia again, is used of service of the word. It's teaching and preaching, uh, the, the responsibility of the apostles. So it would be a mistake, I think, to say that what happens here is they think, oh, let's have a diaconate and we're going to have elders. No, no, we'll call them apostles. Oh, no, let's make some kind of, <laughs> let's leave the church later to figure out how the apostles turned into elders. <laughs> and then we invent the office of deacon to clear up the practical stuff. That's not really what's happening here. You do later get the firming up of those categories. In fact, though, I want to show you a little bit later, it seems to me that the the distinction that you've got here originates before this in Scripture. The the diaconal ministry originates both in the Old Testament before this and also after it in the New Testament context. But what you do have here, and this is the critical thing to get our heads around in verse 2, you've got a distinction between two different kinds of work. And not everybody can do everything. Uh, There is a job to be done in relation to prayer and the ministry of the word, teaching the gospel, seeking by God's grace to speak in such a way that the church continues to grow as it has been doing. And then there's all this other stuff. And it's not sacred work and secular work. And it's not important work and unimportant work. It's just different kinds of work within the church. And this stuff over here is really significant, providing food equitably for everybody. And it needs to be done by somebody or some group of people so that the people who are doing this work over here can carry on doing their work. So you can see the point I'm making? It's not a distinction of office exactly that appears here. It's a distinction of function. Different people are going to focus functionally, spend their time serving within the church in different ways and both need to be done we can't say oh that's only sort of it's only food (laughs) you know this real spiritual stuff is preaching the word no we've got to deal with this but neither should we give up the preaching of the word in order to spend our time as apostles sorting out this practical matter so what we what we need to do is to find somebody or a group of people, to take up this new responsibility. It's that kind of thing which later becomes formalised, as we'll talk about next week, in the office of the deacon. Now, there's a couple of practical things that flow from this immediately. Um, Obviously, this diaconal ministry, the the service of tables, is time-consuming. If it... (laughs) It weren't going to be time-consuming, then the apostles could just sort of do it, you know, in all their spare time without impinging on their labours in preaching and teaching and prayer. Um, And we need to be clear about it. I want to level with you that the the ministry of the diaconate is time-consuming. I don't know, I don't dare to ask how long our deacons spend each week, how many hours each week they spend um, serving the church. They would be embarrassed if I asked them to tell you, but it's, it's probably sometimes single figures of hours 
right? But sometimes not. Um, the, the fact that in this context, a fairly sizable number of men were appointed to oversee this work is indicative of the kind of thing that happens in Christian congregations everywhere where there's just a lot to do. So back to what I said earlier, you know, being asked to consider the role of deacon is not like, you know, well done, you've made it, now you can relax. Like This is your final promotion before you retire where you get the, office, the penthouse office on the top floor and you don't need to do any work anymore because you've got you know, a bunch of underlings to do it all for you. This is like hard work, really hard work. It's one of the reasons why 1 Timothy 3, let them be tested first. Because some people, either because of just temperament or more often perhaps just because of the stage of life they're in or other commitments they've got, they'll make great deacons, but actually they haven't got that time. Or they haven't yet got the ability to organize their time in such a way as to carve it out. That's not a criticism of them. It's just, let's be realistic. This is important. We can't be dropping the ball when diaconal ministry is concerned. Um, so, it's not right that we should stop preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, just pick seven guys and it'll be fine. <laughs> no, it's very interesting. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men... And here are some qualifications. You can see here, if you know 1 Timothy 3, and I know you do, you can see here in, in seed form the kinds of character traits which later get articulated in more detail when Paul the Apostle is explaining to Timothy, this is what to look for in a deacon. Okay. Good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now just look at this a little bit. Um, briefly. Uh, notice, it's quite remarkable, they summoned the full number of the, the disciples in verse 12. So they literally got everybody together, in, all the Christians. I mean, that could have been thousands. It would have been thousands of people by this point, even if lots of people had left after Pentecost and gone back up to wherever they lived in uh, Asia Minor or uh, down in Moab or something. There would be thousands of people. Get everybody together. Presumably, I think, because at this uh, infant stage of the church's life, when everything's changing very rapidly, the apostles realize, like, we, we actually don't know everybody well enough that we can do the picking out. We need, we need to look at the guys in the congregation and say, look, we, will you tell us who are the men who have these kind of character traits? Who is of good repute? First qualification. Who's the kind of guy of whom it could never justifiably be said that there's any, anything that could be held against them. They're, they're not, they have a great reputation. Now, you've got to be careful here. Um, a really godly Christian man could have a very bad reputation with unbelievers for good reasons. Now, they're always saying terrible things about him, like how he won't swear in the workplace and how he's always faithful to his wife and you know, he won't go to the strip club with them for the office party, you know, after the office party at Christmas. You know, what, what a loser he is. You know. Well, that's the kind of bad reputation that you want. <laughs> what we're talking about here is um, men about whom nobody could seriously and justifiably have any charge to bring against them. These, these are upstanding men of the community. Second, full of the spirit. This is used a number of times later. I think it's used of Stephen, again, later, just before he's 
I've heard the verb is used of here, but being filled with the Spirit is a, is a way of describing somebody who is, I don't know, overflowing with that personal, divinely given grace, overflowing with Christ, full of the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ. It, we have um, uh, a tendency, perhaps in some circles, to overreact against our charismatic friends. Our charismatic friends are forever um, talking about wanting the Spirit to kind of fill them again and again and again and again. And, and sometimes in reaction against that, we, we downplay the work of the Spirit or we just suggest that, well, the Spirit, you know, you either have the Spirit or you don't. And if you've got the Spirit, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit, that's the end of the story. Well, the Bible doesn't really speak in those terms. The Bible does suggest that there are some men who are just, they're spiritual. You know, they, they walk into a room they enter a conversation, and the conversation becomes more Christ-like because they've brought the Spirit with them. It's kind of intangible sometimes, but you sort of know it when you see it. You know, there's some guys who walk into a conversation and it just takes three steps downhill, becomes tawdry or base. Other men, they walk into a conversation and everyone else sort of stands up a bit straighter, and you know that pretty soon you're not going to be talking about the price of rice or the baseball game, but you'll be talking about something which is, yeah, this is really edifying. And they have a way of bringing Christ into relationships, which is exactly what you need when you've got the husband, sorry, you've, you've got a, a, a Hebraic and uh, a Hebrew widow who are squabbling with each other and need somebody to reconcile the disagreement because there's not enough, I haven't got enough food full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. And again here, wisdom is drawing on the Old Testament theme of wisdom being more than what the Puritans would call book learning. Book learning is good. A conversation earlier with a couple, and I was pretty impressed with all the books they've read, and, and that's great. And I gave them some more suggestions. And, and yet we all recognize, don't we, that there's more to Christian maturity than that. Um, there's the practical capacity to understand and navigate complexity in the world. Here is a very complex situation. Deacons actually have to deal with quite complex situations. Wisdom. Full of the spirit and wisdom. Um, That will allow us to devote ourselves, the apostle said, verse 4, to prayer and the service of the word. And just to to underscore the point, that the function of the term diakonia here, which is the word from which diakonos, deacon, is derived or to which it's related, the function of it here seems really to be to place in parallel. There's service of the word, there's service of tables. We need both. It's not here is the the initiation of the diaconate. That's not really what's going on. But it is to say this thing needs to be done and later, in the New Testament period, in First Timothy especially, it gets kind of firmed up. So verse 5, what they said, please the whole gathering, this sounds like a good idea. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, and there was a proselyte of Antioch. Um, just a quick note on this. Sometimes people get all kinds of heartburn about this because they're saying, well, th- these are deacons who aren't supposed to be teaching elders, but we've got Stephen preaching in the next chapter and Philip evangelizing 
couple of chapters later, it seems to break down the, the barriers between these offices. And I want to say, well, exactly. Remember, this is not the formal initiation of the diaconate. And it's actually quite natural that sometimes men who are recognized as of good repute and full of the spirit and wisdom would actually make fine preachers as well if called upon to do so. Um, it, there's a kind of fluidity at this early stage of the church's life. Verse 6, they set them before the apostles, prayed and laid their hands on them. Again, some, <coughs> some regard the laying on of hands as an indication of ordination, which it might be. I don't know. But equally in Acts 13, laying on of hands is for men who are already set apart as apostles and evangelists, but they're being commissioned to a new task. We laid on hands for Pastor Shaw uh, a couple of weeks ago, not to ordain him, but because he's being commissioned to a new task. And that's what could be going on in verse 6. And then you've got verse 7. The outcome of this um, is that the word of God continues to increase. Um, there is a, there's a positive and a negative way of perceiving the implication of this for us. Um, negatively, we should expect to run into problems if we don't find sufficient men to take on the very real and important practical tasks of our church's life. And goodness, maybe the growth that we've seen will start to falter. I mean, if people come to All Saints and it's just complete chaos with genuine pastoral and personal needs not being met, I wouldn't blame them for going somewhere else. But let's think about it positively. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, was it 10 churches in 10 years? Or just in the next couple of years here, we've got a growing group of men who are responsible for overseeing the practical aspects of our ministry in such a way that when new people come into the congregation, they feel like, yeah, I could, I could fit in here, and this doesn't feel like it's chaotic. It feels like Solomon's court in 1 Kings 10. Everything's organized, and it's all good. Interesting point on the organization. I didn't mention this, but uh, with those hundreds, perhaps even thousands of widows and seven men to oversee the distribution of food, you cannot... Imagine that you have seven guys making hamburgers for a thousand widows. Like, that's not what they're doing. These are very likely people whose task is to oversee and delegate to other people who are serving. And one of the great things that I've seen in our deacons, uh, actually increasingly since um, uh, in the last couple of years, um, has been the ways in which they have been training overseeing, drawing other people, men and women actually, into practical service in the church. We've seen it in music, we've seen it in all kinds of practical tasks and so on and so forth. It's very, very valuable. They are um, equipping us all in different ways to bring our gifts and to place them before the living God to, and his people to serve them. So then, let me just say a word or two more about um, a bit of the background to this. I mentioned uh, the Old Testament Levitical system. Just pause for a moment and think. Where on earth would um, the apostles here, and certainly Paul the apostle later on in First Timothy 3, where would he have got the idea from for some kind of formal office of people, men, devoted to mostly practical forms of service. 
And we so often read the New Testament in complete isolation from the Old Testament, and it doesn't occur to us to ask these questions. The answer, actually, if you think biblically, is, is obvious. There was in Israel an already existing structure of Levites and priests. And it's not the case, I don't think, that there's a kind of one-to-one correspondence. The Old Testament priests are like the New Testament elders or pastors, and the Old Testament Levites are like the New Testament deacons. I don't think it's as simple as that. But what you do get in the Old Testament is a large tribal group of Levites from whom the priests are taken, whose role is basically teaching and administering sacrificial offerings um, in the sanctuary. Then you've got a larger group of Levites who do pretty much everything else you can imagine to help the priests do their job. And if you read articles, I read an article this afternoon about the the ministry of the Levites, and it's got this long list of references of all the different things they did. They were, um, in some contexts, they are... um, assistants to individual priests, like in Numbers 18. The Levites are an assistant to Aaron. They're ministering to Aaron. You know, Aaron's got like his uh, personal deacon or two. <laughs> um, and uh, in First Chronicles 23, they're making music. Ezra chapter 8, they're counting the gold for the treasury. I think some deacons think that's all they should do. No, no deacons around here. There, there, is a, there is a kind of slightly tongue-in-cheek tradition about deacons having control of the temple treasury um, because they count the offering. Our deacons do count the offering, which I'll speak about in a second. But um, uh, uh, First Chronicles, you've got a whole bunch of practical administrative tasks in the sanctuary, arranging furniture, moving furniture around, keeping things clean, disposing of um, waste and so on. And of course, actually, in Nehemiah 8, you've got them teaching. Now, like I said... I don't think there is a one-to-one correspondence where you've got Levites to deacons and priests to pastors or elders. But clearly what you have is a range of practical tasks which have to be done by somebody which, if we're not careful, would distract the priests from their teaching and sacrificial ministry. So is it any surprise that that twofold structure roughly of priests and Levites gets kind of echoed somehow in the New Testament is no surprise to me at all um, so briefly then as we as I wanted to say a word or two about some implications and and then um, I'm going to pause see if you've got any questions and I'm sure you will have um, I hope this makes it clear firstly that we should avoid a kind of coy uh, reluctance to contemplate the office of deacon. I think this is understandable. Uh, I sent out a few emails to some men and and said, hey, uh, uh, we're going to be having these Bible studies. I'd love to see you there. And (laughs) almost to a man, they wrote back and said, well, I don't feel ready for this. And I'm sure, of course you don't, obviously, right? That's, that's understandable, but what we don't want it to turn into is a kind of permanent, oh, I couldn't possibly, it's, it's so far above me. There's a, there's a way of, of saying that, which actually is like, I'm not going to serve. And I want to say, frankly, some of you are going to have to. Flip side, of course, is we don't want to be grasping for this. 
which is why I emphasised earlier on, this is not a badge for high performance or a kind of retirement ticket that means you don't have to do any work anymore and we can all, you got your name on the bulletin, oh, I've made it, I'm a deacon. We've got to avoid both those errors. Either the kind of arrogant presumption, I want to get this title, or the coy and reluctant refusal to embrace this uh, ministry. Men, some of you are going to have to do this. And of course, don't worry, we're not going to leave you on your own just to figure this out. We'll, as pastors, we'll chat with you and walk with you through this and try and figure out when or whether this is the right thing for you to do. Second, it is deeply unglamorous. I mean, we don't hear much from these guys again. We hear from Stephen, you hear from Philip, but, um, you know, what's his name? Timon and Parmenas. Maybe they get, maybe between them, those other five guys get a mention or two elsewhere in the New Testament, but they more or less disappear off the map because they're preoccupied with the deeply unglamorous and mostly invisible tasks of making sure that there aren't starving Hebraic, uh, sorry, starving Hellenistic widows in Jerusalem. Uh, Diaconal ministry is not like pulpiteering. Being a pastor brings with it a bunch of uh, terrible temptations to self-aggrandizement and pride. Who are you? Who are you? All you guys, some of my best friends, all listening to me in silence. (laughs) Um, Pastors have to deal with that temptation to pride. Let me tell you, deacons don't have to deal with the temptation to pride. (laughs) They have to deal with physical exhaustion, um, uh, being poured out in their ministry. It's, uh, It's hard, hard work. I thank God for the deacons we have and I'm praying for more. Um, I mentioned already the delegation point. Uh, there, is a, uh, there is an aspect to diaconal ministry, which is about, are you good with people? Can, uh, and it would be wonderful to have men who are bringing perhaps some of their professional skills where they're managing people into a context where they're able to train the younger men, the teenage boys, young men really, or the younger men in their 20s to um, take on some of these responsibilities. Um, uh, fourth, I've said this before, but um, I I should say it again. Um, Morally, we'll come to this next week, uh, deacons need to be absolutely above reproach. We ask some fairly probing questions of the deacons during uh, their examination and their interviews as a session. And the idea is not to be prurient, but to, you know, we... You have a scandal in a church, that's bad. You have a scandal with a deacon, that's a disaster. So men, genuinely, your godliness really matters. Three years' time, one of the session or the whole session might be nominating you as a deacon. And if you come along and say, well, I'm really sorry, I can't do this, I've got a porn addiction, I'll probably punch you. (laughs) I probably won't punch you, but I'll be like... How long for? Well, ever since, you know, about six months before you did that first talk, A Vision for Deacons, I'm like, why didn't you come and tell somebody? Why, why, why weren't we dealing with this in 2023 so that three years down the track you're in a better place and you've dealt with that? Repented of sins, nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah? So whatever it is, let's deal with it now. So in a couple of years' time, when we need you, we can have you. Yes? And then um, finally, I've used this illustration before. 
perhaps the most, the, the single most helpful image in my mind, I find, for what, what makes a great deacon is somebody, you can just say, please take the wheel. I need to go. Or I can't go to something. Uh, I need you to go for me. And whatever it is, somebody who will, you can trust to take responsibility in this situation and make sure the job gets done. You know, there's a difference between somebody who says, I'll do a job, and somebody who says, I'll take responsibility to do a job. And all the, all the managers are nodding now. The, the, the guy says, I'll do the job. When it turns out that he can't do it, he'll call you and tell you he can't do it. I had this happen, happen to me once. I had somebody, uh, somebody sent me a... No, they, in fairness, they did call me on a Sunday morning to explain that their printer had broken and they couldn't do the order of worship. I'm like, why are you calling me? And I, I know why they're calling me, because I've got a printer. But why are you doing it on Sunday morning and putting yourself in this position where... Like, do you think I've got nothing to do on Sunday morning before worship? Do you know what I mean? Whereas there's a difference between that mindset, which is just not really think, how would I take responsibility for making sure the orders of worship were printed? I would not turn my printer on at 9.30 on a Sunday morning. It'd be Thursday night, wouldn't it? So it's taking responsibility for making sure it gets done. We, I've seen this. I, I won't embarrass him now. Uriah and Aaron. I don't know what, whether you're in touch with each other during the week. You seem to be. I get a text message, middle of Wednesday afternoon, from one of the other of you saying, I've got the Bible study Zoom recording tonight. I mean, you're too young to be a deacon. But that's great. Both of you, seriously. Because you are, it's not just, well, I'll do it if I can make it. And it gets to five to seven. I'm thinking, where's Aaron? Where's Uriah? Oh, well. But you're taking responsibility for it. That's what I'm talking about. Because the apostles can't hold their hands while they try and figure this out. They're going to have to let them go and do it themselves and make sure it gets done. Okay, I've talked enough. Um, Over the page, there are some things that I'd like you, if you wouldn't mind, seriously, to reflect on. Um, and especially um, if you're married and over the age of 30, uh, I'd love to talk with you about these. Uh, if there's, first, any points discussed tonight by which you felt particularly challenged? Uh, has tonight's discussion given you any new goals to which you should aspire? Uh, wives, for uh, those of you who are wives, in what ways do you think your husband might presently be qualified or unqualified for diaconal ministry? especially off the back of what we're talking about tonight. Is it, what do you see in him that you think, that's great? What do you see in him where you think, oh, yeah, you've highlighted something where I think he's, he's got space to grow? And then finally, um, did tonight's discussion raise any other specific questions? I would, I would love to have a bunch of conversations in the coming months with anybody here or on the, uh, the Zoom uh, link where you're bringing along three of these with your questions scribbled on and your reflections scribbled And I can sit down with you and your wife and just work through these and let's see where we are. Because I think that purposeful, self-conscious striving to address the, the need that we have for deacons. Firstly, it will do everybody here a great deal of good because we're just talking about basic godliness. And it may, by God's grace, surface some men who will be those four, five, six outstanding candidates next time we have nominations open. All right, enough for me. I'm going to pause 20 minutes left. 
we may have some questions from you guys at home, some questions from you. Um, so feel free to stick a hand up if you have any thoughts about any of this or ask any questions or make any comments. Your eye is doing this thing. Does that mean there's nobody on the scene? Okay. I had a suspicion that this Bible study would silence all the guys. And I was right. Anne's got her hand up. Go on. Well, um, in Esther's podcast, we talked about and summarized what the implies that the, the dude in question is married and has children. <laughs> Do deacons have to be married and have children? Okay. That's a very good question. Okay, so um, <laughs> in ethics class, we talked about 1 Timothy 3 where it implied that the dude in question uh, should be married and have children. Um, and so the, we will look at this in more detail. Well, I'm not, not going to answer the question tonight. But basically the, the discussion is between those who say um, the requirement is that they must be married because it mentions their wives and their households, or that if they are married, their households need to have a certain character. And there's, there's those two positions, and there's a kind of grey area in between them. Um, uh, we can talk about that another time. But let's, let's talk about that when we've got First Timothy 3 in front of us. Thank you, Dan. There's no questions. We can go home for the earliest end to any Bible study ever. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. San Janito. I know we introduced your discussion, but that would have made all, disqualified all of the teachers. Right, right. So um, if the requirement in 1 Timothy 3 was that you had to be married, it would be hard for, to see how Paul, who professed to be single in 1 Corinthians 7, um, could have been a deacon. Yes. Which is one reason for thinking that it is a... There's an assumption there that probably most men are married when they get to marriageable age or not much beyond. And therefore, given that, etc. But if you weren't married, there might be some other way of demonstrating those qualifications. Yes, that, that's, that's how the logic might run. Might. Oh, yeah, Mr. Barnes, yeah, sorry. Um, will you be elaborating later on the other a guideline or a role in which a deacon is also supposed to balance the office of his title, deaconship? I think that's a great question. And I, I, let me speak to that a little bit now and, and, and just get your thoughts. So the question, just in case you didn't hear it at home, is um, let me re- rephrase it and, and see if it works. Um, how would we balance the, the significant responsibilities of diaconal ministry with the other responsibilities that a married man might have to work and his wife and his children, um, especially given the actual the significant time commitment. Um, hmm. Have you noticed that if you want something done, the best person to ask is a busy person? You've heard as much. You've heard as much, right. Um, I, I think it's really intriguing. Uh, some men seem to get a, an eye-watering amount of stuff done. They have large families, and all their ducks are in a row, 
all the kids are in a row. Uh, their wives seem happy, uh, they've got a busy job, and they put 10 hours a week into serving as an elder, <laughs> for example. You know. um, and I think what your question, the, the reflection that your question prompts in me is that we probably all have some significant way to go in getting better at using our time. Um, we, yeah, I, the idea is not to deprive deacons' families of husband and father in a destructive way. Although, truth be told, it, it is a sacrifice. Now, deacons' wives will have fewer hours in the week where they might be able to see their husband because some of those hours he'll be serving the church as a, in his diaconal calling. But my, my hope would be that the, the characteristics that would make a, a good deacon, you know, able to oversee the distribution of hot dogs and hamburgers to hundreds of disgruntled and hungry widows without causing chaos or offence, those personal and organisational qualities would actually make somebody really good at um, managing their time. So they don't always seem busy. Even though there's a difference between busyness and productivity. Sometimes we substitute busyness for productivity. <laughs> it's not great. Um, so, yeah, it's a, there's a balance to be drawn there between a realistic expectation, it's a, it's a significant commitment, and a huge privilege, and very important. And at the same time, the Lord... Well, what's the lesson? Joshua's long day. God gives time to those who pray. And, and who look to him. Does that answer the question, Philip? Yeah. It's a start. It's a start, yeah, yeah. What makes me laugh is when I hear teenagers telling me how busy they are. <laughs> I remember those days. I thought I was busy too. Um, and you are. Um, your, your time is full like a balloon is full when it's this big. And you can squeeze a whole lot more air into a balloon if you just... Now, you don't want to pop, right? But you... I'm going to be pushing you in theology class this year to do a little bit more of this. Um, you can... Uh, look at your dad and look at some of the other men in the church and, and see, well, how do they get this done? Yeah, it's because they are working hard. So. Uh, Uriah, yes. This is a Zoom question. All right. Uh, any precedents uh, for mm -hmm. <laughs> You all want to talk about First Timothy 3. Any precedents for deaconesses? Um, I don't think so. I, I, I certainly think that the office, that, that um, in First Timothy 3, what is... Come on. All right. You do this. Honestly. <laughs> First Timothy 3. Turn with me to First Timothy 3. Um.
So this is a, is a later New Testament letter. Qualifications for overseers, more or less parallel, I believe, to elders in verses, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and then deacons, verses 8 to 13. And you look closely, you've got deacons, likewise, verse 8, all the way down to verse 10. Let them be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Then literally, I think it's the, is it the women? Or is that, I can't forget. It's, that's right, it's, it's not, no article. So it's women, likewise must be dignified. It doesn't say there, in the sense of possessive third person, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. Right, now, that's one of the major clues here that I don't think Paul is talking about deaconesses, female deacons, in verse uh, 11. Because if he's talking about deaconesses in verse 11, then he has qualifications for deacons, qualification for deaconesses, then qualifications for deacons again. It's back and forth. It doesn't make sense. Another reason is that the qualification list is really rather short compared to the fairly lengthy list of requirements placed upon deacons, and it's different. Now, you might then say, okay, maybe there's a kind of informal way in which women would serve in a church. I've no quarrel with that. We see it all the time. But that's not the same as saying there's a formal ordained office of deacon, which has been a, a historic reformed and Presbyterian, uh, sorry, of deaconess, which has been a historic reformed kind of Presbyterian style. So um, there's more complexity to that, which we can come to another week. But I've, I don't think that, okay, we're not looking for deaconesses in the sense of formally identified, certainly not ordained office holders. We are looking, let's say, we're looking for lowercase d deaconesses in the same way that we want everybody to be a lowercase d deacon, in the sense of it being a servant. Like, we want you guys to be servants. Don't wait for us to lay hands on you. Just serve. Just diaconeto. And we're not going to ordain you as a diaconos, but we just want you to diaconeto, okay, to do the deaconing, to serve. Be a servant. Christ is a servant. We're all to be servants. Certainly... That's right. And there are many, many women who have more or less responsibility in all kinds of different areas of church life. I'm looking around at a handful of them here. Um, Ladies' fellowship and uh, organising various practical aspects of the church's life. Yeah. Does that answer the question? Whoever asked it? Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. So has this... Let me get a question just to flip over to the back page to anticipate what you might talk about. Um, take a minute or two, maybe talk to the person next to you, and I wonder if you could consider then, were there any points discussed tonight by which you felt particularly challenged? I'll give you a minute or two just to think about that first question, and maybe the second one, any new goals to which you should aspire. They're related, but they're somewhat distinct. Take a moment maybe just to talk to the person next to you and consider the answer to that first and maybe the second question. All right. So some good conversations going on. Who's going to be brave? Come on, tell me. Tell us, tell us all. Any particular ways in which you felt uh, challenged or new goals, specific goals 
to aspire to? Any beginning to be courageous? And Yeah, go on, Justin. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. It's more than just time management, isn't it? It's, it's, it's prizing the gift of time. You know, work when you work, rest when you rest. And sometimes I think we hover, I'm guilty of this, Nicole will tell you, of sort of hovering in this halfway house, not really resting because I've got my phone and checking email and, oh, Pastor Neil's emailed me again, quick answer him. Um, but not really working either. You know, I do, I do a good three minutes work in half an hour. <laughs> But not rest for the other 27 minutes. Yeah, so there's that, that kind of discipline. Yeah. Anybody else going to be courageous? And there's some good questions going on over here. Yeah, Mr. Barnes, go ahead. Uh, which, uh, I, I would find it really challenging that for such a position, at the very least, looking at it from a human or worldly point of view, you are undertaking a lot of, there's a word, liability. Yes. Very little asset, very little, very little in return for yourself. Oh yes. And I mean, it, frankly, it reminds me of what Jesus was referring to the apostles back then. If you're going to be having one heck of a time, and really, you're not going to get any, you know, well, your, your glory is going to be in heaven, but not. Yes, earth. yes. No, that's very perceptive. I think that um, the word um, diaconia is is rendered sometimes servant, and the, the, the word group has to do with service. It's different from the slave word group, doulos. But yeah, in, in worldly terms, it's like, what's in this for me? Well, <laughs> nothing. Unless you thought that giving is receiving. Unless you thought that what we ought to be doing is seeking to find ways to lay down our lives. Unless you thought that um, we've all got to take up our cross and course all those things are true and and one of the things that's actually really wonderful to see is you know guys who've worked up a sweat I talk about guys like guys who've worked up a sweat digging a drainage ditch around a friend's house to put new plumbing in it's like totally exhausting eight hours work on a Saturday you get to the end of it and it's such a great feeling of just been of working together what have you got out of it blisters you know but it's, it's just it's great and you, and we discover in service that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I, I talk to our deacons. <laughs> Please, guys, I hope you testify to that. We, we can't afford to be giving any of you a sabbatical right now. Okay? <laughs> um, I, I think we, and we've probably all found that, haven't we, at different times, where, where we have maybe joyfully, maybe a little bit reluctantly gone out of our way for somebody, and then we've been really glad afterwards as we've, as we've experienced giving. Yeah. Okay, we've got a minute left. If we've got no more questions, then we'll pray. Any final questions or comments? Is that a hand up? No. All right. Very good. All right. Well, let me say thank you again um, for coming, especially those of you, you for whom Wednesday nights is not normally a free evening, and therefore this required some rearranging. Um, I thank God for you. Um, taking this as a reflection of your commitment to Christ's church and your desire to 
take this opportunity to explore how you might serve him in the future. And I pray that whether or not we, I'm looking at 20 future deacons here, um, I'm looking at 20, no, more than 20, because I'm looking at everybody here who is going to be more godly in five years' time as a result of chewing over these things and striving to grow in the faithfulness that is required of us by the great servant Jesus. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful Father, thank you that we serve a servant, a man who has been before us, who has laid down for us far more than he asks us to lay down for each other. We pray that you'd teach us to realise that uh, our godliness and faithfulness and maturity really matter, not just for our own sake, not just for the most precious thing of all, for Christ to be glorified, but at the practical level for the flourishing of our brothers and sisters in Christ, so that maybe some of us may take up formal uh, offices within the church and uh, be labelled, so to speak, as those set aside to serve. We pray, Father, that you'd watch over us as a church. We thank you for the growth we're experiencing, and we pray that uh, in this way, through the raising up of future deacons and the growth and godliness of all of us, uh, we may be equipped to continue growing in faithfulness and size and maturity for many, many years to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody, drive safely, and I look forward, God willing, to seeing you all next week, and see you Sunday, of course, as well.